We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program. Today we're going to talk with uh, John Zmirak. He is uh, the writes for the stream. He's a columnist. We're going to talk about his predictions for the midterm elections and why he thinks Democrats keep turning to the uh, to Clintons he refers to as corrupt. Now a lot of people don't remember the history of the Clintons, so that word might be somewhat puzzling. We're going to talk with him about that later this hour. And in the five o'clock hour we'll talk with Lindsay Dennis. She's the author of Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. Now those two things are at opposite ends of the continuum. We're going to talk about how to get from one to the other. That's coming up in the five o'clock hour. Well, there's been a, a quite a few uh, breaking news stories today. We learned that Paul Allen, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, has died from complications of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Uh, um, he, on behalf of his family, Vulcan Inc. Uh, passed that news, news along. He passed away this afternoon in Seattle at age 65. His sister Jody said he was a remarkable individual on every level, writing that while most knew Paul Allen as a technologist and philanthropist, for us, he was a much loved brother and uncle and an exceptional friend. Paul's family and friends were blessed to experience his wit, uh, his warmth, his generosity and deep concern, she said in a statement. For all the demands on his schedule, there was always time for family and friends. At this time of loss and grief for us and so many others, we are profoundly grateful for the care and concern he demonstrated every day. Well, earlier this month, Alan revealed that he had started treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the same type of cancer he overcame some nine years earlier. Well, the longtime CEO left Microsoft when he was first diagnosed with the disease. Current Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella said that Alan made in dispensable contributions to Microsoft technology industry. Adela said that he learned a lot from Allen and will continue to be inspired by him. As co-founder of Microsoft in his own quiet and persistent way, he created magical products, experiences, and institutions, and in doing so, he changed the world, Adela said in a statement. Allen also ranked among the world's wealthiest individuals. As of Monday afternoon, he ranked 44th on the Forbes 2018 list of billionaires with an estimated uh, net worth of more than $20 billion. He was also the owner of NBA's uh, Portland Trailblazers, the NFL Seattle Seahawks, and had a stake in Seattle Sounder soccer team. Of course, you don't take that with you when you go, but the uh, the world is uh, mourning the death of Paul Allen, who died of cancer this afternoon at age 65. Also, we learned that a judge has thrown out the lawsuit against President Trump of Stormy Daniels, requiring that she pay his attorney fees. Now, her attorney, Mr. Avenatti, indicated that they fully intend to uh, appeal that decision. But as of now, the judge has thrown out that lawsuit requiring Stormy Daniels to pay uh, the fees on that, um, the legal fees on that, what he would refer to as a frivolous lawsuit. And the back and forth regarding the uh, Saudi government and whether or not they were responsible for the death of uh, Mr. Khashoggi, uh, the Saudi government 
government is apparently considering whether to say that rogue intelligence operatives murdered the activist and writer Jamal Khashoggi by mistake inside the kingdom's consulate in Istanbul rather earlier this month. Multiple media outlets are reporting. Now, the president had said something similar just a short time after uh, having spoken on the phone with the uh, uh, Saudi government leader. Wall Street Journal said it was not immediately clear if or when Saudi Arabia would release a statement on Khashoggi's disappearance. As as you may have been following, there's a lot at stake. Depending on how uh, Saudi Arabia answers that question, people familiar with the matter told the paper that the contents of any statement had uh, not been finalized. Sources say that the president has not been made aware of any pending report by the Saudi government. Khashoggi was 59. He had uh, not been seen since he entered the Saudi consulate in the afternoon of October uh, 2nd. Turkish authorities have said that they have evidence proving that he was killed by Saudi agents, while uh, Riyadh officials have claimed that Khashoggi was uh, alive when he left the building, and they do not know what happened to him. Well, that has now been a challenge, but the answer to that question that ultimately the Saudi government uh, determines to um, uh, to make will make uh, will have a significant impact on U.S. relations with Turkey and just a lot of uh, geopolitical issues related to this particular issue. Also want to remind you that if you are in the state of Oregon, tomorrow is your last day to register to vote. This November, you have an opportunity to shape history, as is the case with every election, by using the most powerful tool you have as an American, and that is, of course, your vote. The wonderful gift of being an American citizen is that our Constitution gives us, you and me, the ability to freely use our vote as our voice to choose our leaders and policies based on our values. Now, if you decline to do so, you have given that opportunity to others, and they certainly will take full advantage of it. If you value the importance of America's alliance with Israel, one of the most effective ways to show that is at the ballot box. If you are concerned about religious freedom, if you're concerned about whether or not taxpayers in the state of Oregon will fund um, abortions, uh, this election will give you the opportunity to weigh in on those questions. Again, tomorrow is the last day to register to vote here in the state of Oregon. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories from earlier in the day, in a wide-ranging interview, the president addressed speculation that Defense Secretary James Mattis would leave the administration, defended his approach to NATO, explained why he trusts Kim Jong-un, and said he would not shut down special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation again. Well, the president is, well, he did, uh, in fact, visit uh, areas of Florida and Georgia ravaged by Hurricane Michael today. An ailing retail giant Sears filed for bankruptcy protection early today. The president of Turkey and Saudi King, um, the Saudi King, reportedly have discussed forming a team to investigate the disappearance of alleged killing of the Saudi activist Jamal Hugi. And now we're hearing uh, later today that, in fact, a statement might be made um, accepting responsibility, but saying that his death that occurred in the consulate was an accident. We'll see whether or not that materializes. And Hillary Clinton denied in an interview on Sunday that Bill Clinton's affair with White House intern Monica Lewinsky, uh, Lewinsky rather, was an abuse of power. Meghan Markle, the Duchess of Sussex, is expecting a child. She and Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex, are expecting their first child next spring, Kensington Palace announced. Well, President Trump raised eyebrows on several topics in a wide-ranging interview on 60 Minutes uh, Sunday night. The president addressed rumors of Secretary of Defense Mattis' imminent departure by saying that uh, he may leave and calling the widely respected general sort of a Democrat. However, Trump pointed out that everybody leaves during the course of the presidential administration and that he and Mattis have a good relationship. Speculation about Mattis started at a fever pitch last month when Woodward's book Fear was released. The book claimed Mattis told associates at the National Security Council meeting this year that Trump had the understanding of and often acted like a fifth or sixth grader. Mattis denied Woodward's allegations. President Trump also called reports that the White House is in chaos 
so false and fake news. In a contentious exchange with 60 Minutes correspondent Leslie Stahl, he said he had no intention of shutting down special counsel Robert Mueller's Russia investigation and added that he believes that China interfered in the 2016 election as well. When asked why he would not pledge to not shut down the Russia probe, Trump said, uh, why should I pledge to you if I pledge, I'll pledge. I don't have to pledge to you. Quote. The president also defended his past comments on NATO, saying that the United States is no longer uh, to be taken advantage of and that NATO countries must pay more into their defense budget. At one point, the president said he thinks he knows more about the NATO alliance from the standpoint of fairness than Defense Secretary Mattis. And on efforts to denuclearize North Korea, the president said he trusts Kim Jong-un to dismantle its nuclear weapons program. He uh, attributed this special relationship to good chemistry. The president uh, also uh, took a tour of Michael's devastation. He and the first lady, Melania Trump, uh, traveled and visited parts of Florida and Georgia destroyed by Hurricane Michael last week. Uh, And to see the recovery efforts for himself, the president declared a state of emergency for Georgia late Sunday upon touring the damage in several towns along Florida's panhandle. Federal Emergency Management Agency Chief Brock Long called the destruction left by Hurricane Michael some of the worst he's ever seen. In hurricane-flattened Mexico Beach, Florida, crews with um, backhoes and other heavy equipment scooped up uh, splintered boards, broken glass, chunks of asphalt, and other debris Sunday as the mayor held our held out hope rather that the 250 or so residents who may uh, have tried to ride out the storm uh, may be found alive the death toll from michael remained at 17 with just one confirmed death so far in mexico beach but authorities acknowledge the death toll could rise as search and rescue efforts continue and sears holding uh, made it official early today this morning announcing the retailer has filed for chapter 11 bankruptcy protection sears had a debt payment of 134 million dollars due today banks have agreed to provide Sears with a bankruptcy loan. Sears says the Eddie Lampert hedge fund will provide $300 million in bankruptcy financing. Lampert will also step down as CEO but remain chairman. Uh, Hillary Clinton stood by her man this weekend. She denied in an interview Sunday that her husband's extramarital affair with then-White House intern Lewinsky was an abuse of power and added that former President Bill Clinton was right not to resign amid a scandal that led to his impeachment on perjury and obstruction charges. Absolutely not, the former first lady said during a CBS Sunday morning interview. When asked if Bill Clinton should have stepped down, it wasn't an abuse of power. The the, uh, interviewer asked, uh, the correspondent Tony Dokupil asked, Well, Clinton responded, no, no, Hillary Uh, Clinton, who went on to be elected to the Senate and served as President Obama's secretary of state, said the relationship was not an abuse of power because Lewinsky was an adult, 22 at the time of the affair. Uh, Doug Schoen uh, says of the uh, exchange that Hillary and uh, Holder are hurting the Democrats with their amazing and disgusting comments. And some Democrats say they fear that her um, involvement, her constant presence is a kiss of death at the midterms as they approach. And uh, as I mentioned, Meghan Markle and the Duchess of Sussex is pregnant and Kensington Palace announced today that she and Harry are expecting sometime this spring. Kensington Palace announced on Twitter, their Royal Highness uh, very much appreciate all of the support they have received from people around the world since their wedding in May and are delighted to be able to share their happy news. Meghan Markle and Prince Harry married last May. And on this day in 1991, despite sexual harassment allegations by Anita Hill, the Senate narrowly confirmed the nomination of Clarence Thomas to the U.S. Supreme Court, 5248. And on this day in 1976, in the first debate of its kind between vice presidential nominees, Democrat Walter Mondale and Republican Bob Dole face off in Houston. And on this day in 1860, 
Eleven-year-old Grace Bedell of Westfield, New York, writes a letter to presidential candidate Abraham Lincoln suggesting he could improve his appearance by growing a beard. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 25 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, freed American pastor Andrew Brunson fell to one knee in the Oval Office, placed his hand on President Donald Trump's shoulder in prayer on Saturday, asking God to provide the president's supernatural wisdom to accomplish all the plans you have for this country and for him. Well, the president welcomed Pastor Brunson to the White House to celebrate his release from nearly two years of confinement in Turkey which had sparked a diplomatic row with a key ally, an outcry from U.S. evangelical groups. Brunson returned to the United States aboard a military jet shortly before meeting the president. He was detained in October of 2016, formally arrested that December and placed under house arrest on the 25th of July for health reasons. From a Turkish prison to the White House in 24 hours, that's not bad, the president said. Well, Brunson's homecoming amounts to a diplomatic and possibly political win for Trump and his uh, base coming on the heels of a confirmation of a conservative justice to the Supreme Court. The pastor's uh, return is likely to leave evangelical Christians feeling uh, good about the president and motivated to get to the polls in November uh, for the midterm elections. Well, that's somewhat of a cynical approach, uh, given the fact that this is an independent event that has nothing to do with politics or the election. But nonetheless, Brunson appeared to be in good health and good spirits when he asked the president if he could pray for him. The president replied, well, I need it probably more than anyone else in the room. So that would be a very nice thank you. Well, Pastor Brunson left his chair beside the president, knelt and placed his hand on the president's As the president bowed his head, Pastor Brunson asked God to give him supernatural wisdom. Uh, He continued, I ask that you give him perseverance and endurance and courage to stand for truth. I ask that you protect him from slander from the enemies, from those who would undermine. I ask that you make him a great blessing to this country. Uh, Fill him with your wisdom and strength and perseverance, and we bless him. May he be a great blessing to our country. In Jesus' name, we bless you. Amen. Pastor Brunson, originally from Black Mountain, North Carolina, had lived in Turkey with his family for more than two decades and led a small congregation in the Izmir Resurrection Church. He was accused of committing crimes on behalf of Kurdish militants and to aid a Pennsylvania-based Muslim cleric, Fethullah Gulen, accused by Turkey of engineering the failed coup. He faced up to 35 years in jail if convicted of all the charges against him. Administration officials cast Brunson's release as vindication of the president's hard-nosed negotiation stance, saying that Turkey tried to set terms for Brunson's release, but uh, that the president was insistent on Brunson's release without conditions. Uh, President Trump maintained there was no deal for Brunson's freedom, but the president dangled the prospect of better relations between the U.S. and its NATO ally. We do not pay ransom in this country, Trump said. Where um, previous administrations kept negotiations over U.S. prisoners held abroad close to the vest, President Trump has elevated them to causes celebrate, striking a tough line with allies and foes alike. President Trump thanked Turkey's president, Recep Erdogan, who had resisted the demands of the president and other high-level U.S. officials for Brunson's release. Erdogan had insisted that his country's courts are independent, though he previously had suggested a possible swap for Brunson. The U.S. had repeatedly called for Brunson's release and this year sanctioned two Turkish officials and doubled tariffs on steel and aluminum, or aluminium, imports, citing 
uh, citing that in part for Bronson's, uh, Brunson's plight. The president said the U.S. greatly appreciated the pastor's release and said the move will lead to good, perhaps great relations between the U.S. and fellow NATO ally Turkey and said the White House would take a look at sanctions or at these sanctions. The president asked to Pastor Brunson and his family which candidate they voted for in 2016. Only President Trump, I suppose, would have asked that question, saying he was confident they had gone for him. I would like to say I sent in an absentee ballot from Brins- from uh, prison, Brunson quipped. Well, evangelical voters overwhelmingly voted for the president despite discomfort with his personal shortcomings, in large part because he pledged to champion their causes. Prominent evangelical leaders, Tony Perkins, have championed Brunson's case, as has the bright, uh, vice president. First word of uh, the pastor's arrival back on American soil Saturday came from Tony Perkins, president of the Family Research Council. He tweeted just afternoon that he had landed at a military base outside Washington with uh, his wife and uh, wife Noreen, rather. Erdogan said on Twitter that he hoped the two countries will continue to cooperate as it uh, befits two allies. Relationships between the countries have become severely strained over the pastor's detention and a host of other issues. 30 minutes after four o'clock is our time. We're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to talk with um, John Zmirak. He writes for The Stream. We'll talk about his prediction for the midterm elections and uh, whether or not uh, the Clintons who keep, well, appearing and speaking are an, an asset or a liability for the Democrats. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 33 minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the million dollar question is whether or not there will be a blue wave this fall in the midterm elections. Well, the stream's John Zmirak believes that the Clintons are sabotaging any chance of a blue wave happening in November. The midterm election is essentially an impeachment referendum on President Trump. And if the Democrats gain control of the House, they will block every Trump policy. However, my next guest believes that the Democrats have no chance because they still haven't cut ties with the Clintons, the corrupt Clintons. Well, he joins us now to talk about that piece and what we might anticipate when these uh, midterm elections finally arrive. John Zmirak, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I, I want to correct you. I, I think the Democrats have a chance, but uh, and we need to get out and vote on November 6th in the impeachment referendum. There is a chance. I don't want people to be complacent, but I was pointing out that the lingering corruption, the taint, the cancer that the Clintons were on the country and on the Democratic Party gives us some hope that we won't see the House of Representatives turn into a show trial with the impeachment of Trump, the impeachment of Kavanaugh, the impeachment of Jeff Sessions, just basically a war between the two the two branches of government such as we haven't seen in America since the 1860s when the Congress decided to cripple President Andrew Johnson. Now, the Clintons, the, the Clintons are considered elder statesmen. Can they be controlled? I'm hearing from more Democrats who are suggesting they wish the Clintons would just walk off into the sunset. They're going to have a uh, speaking tour coming up, uh, Hillary Clinton keeps inserting herself. Is it possible, first of all, to control what they say, when they say it, and whether or not they continue to make appearances? No, because they're, they're incredibly self-serving. I mean, look at the, look at the Clinton Foundation they set up as a cash cow that supposedly was helping people in Haiti, but was in fact selling uranium to Vladimir Putin. I mean, I, I wanted to talk about the, the one race in, in Miami, the 27th Congressional District. That was supposed to be a gimme for the Democrats. It, Trump lost by 20, almost 20 points in the presidential election, but now the Republican, Maria Alito Salazar, is, is ahead of the Democrat. And why is that? Well, the Democrat is Donna Shalala. She is the former head of the cash-grabbing Clinton Foundation, which pulled in, believe it or not, 
not. I'm looking up the number. $145 million from the chairman of Uranium One, which is a company controlled by Vladimir Putin's Russian government. And that let the Russians take control of one-fifth of U.S. uranium reserves while Hillary was Secretary of State. And Bill Clinton got a half a billion dollars for making a single speech there. Donna Shalala was overseeing all this when it happened. So how can she, you know, argue, oh, uh, Trump was elected by Russian collusion. The only Russian collusion goes right back to Donna Shalala and the Clintons. And, and again, Donna Shalala made a big deal out of, out of the Brett Kavanaugh nom- nomination. Jesse wrote on Twitter, history will judge the men who look cast their votes for Kavanaugh's confirmation. This is her tweet. This vote reinforces the simple tragic fact that this administration and the Republican Party don't believe women. You know who didn't believe women? Donna Shalala. She stood in the driveway of the White House with Bill Clinton when Bill Clinton was calling Monica Lewinsky a liar. And when Juanita Broderick brought very detailed, instantiated rape charges against President Clinton, Donna Shalala stood by Clinton. She did not resign from his cabinet. She said she didn't know whether or not to believe Juanita Broderick. She kept working for Clinton in the White House, and now she runs the Clinton Foundation. And yet she has the gall to say that these vaporous allegations against Brett Kavanaugh ought to disqualify him from the Supreme Court. But the problem is the Democrats are rife with people like this. You've got Senator Menendez, who apparently uh, used the services of underage prostitutes when he was out of the country. You've got Keith, Ella- Keith Ellison, with, you know, vice president, vice chair of the DNC Democratic National Committee. There are domestic abuse charges against him, again, with photographs and medical reports and police reports. But the, way, the, the level of corruption and abuse of women that you see associated with the Clintons is such that it, it, it makes their attacks on Republicans, it shows them up for what they are which is utter hypocrisy, that they actually have less credibility than Elizabeth Warren's Native American heritage. How widely known is that history? When you think about younger voters, many of whom weren't even alive when much of this took place, is that a history that's broadly known, that has the impact, the potential to impact the election in significant ways? Um, I think that her Republican opponent is making something of it in her district. You know, not everybody in Sheboygan has to know about it, but people in the district have to know about it. Each individual Democrat has to answer for their level of, of involvement in Clinton-era corruption. And remember, the Clinton era was supposed to continue this, this whole impeachment show trial is just based on the fact that the voters didn't follow orders. The Clinton era was supposed to continue with the election of Hillary Clinton in 2016. And the Democrats have have decided, starting on election night, they're going to nullify this presidential election by hook or by crook, by fair means or foul. They're going to frustrate the voters' will and stop them from having the presidency voted for. Um, The whole Russia collusion thing, it collapsed. I mean, Bob... Mueller is running on fumes. He's not found a single thing to tie the president's campaign to anything to do with Russian collusion. Meanwhile, we're seeing all these ties of the Clinton Foundation to, to Russia. Um, I think voters are, are beginning to smell the hypocrisy of Democrats who, who pretend that they believe women, but were taking money and posing for pictures with Harvey Weinstein right up until he was exposed in the press. Yeah, and that, of course, his conduct was broadly known within the industry and by outsiders who associated with him as well. Exactly. So the whole Me Too thing, I think they've actually really damaged the effort to help women come forward with charges of legitimate sexual harassment and abuse by putting someone like Julie Swetnick on on, on NBC with these invented charges of, of teenage gang rape, serial teenage gang rapes going on 
in Washington, D.C. prep schools for which there is mysteriously no evidence, and the witnesses are either dead or say they've never heard of Julie Slater. Well, it is a, an interesting um, series of alleged events that, uh, as you point out, had no cooperation whatsoever. A lurid fantasy from the brain of a porn lawyer. Hmm. Well, we did learn earlier today that uh, Stormy Daniels' lawsuit has been tossed, um, and she'll have to pay for the, uh, this is, a, of course, a separate case, but uh, Avenatti being the attorney, she'll have to pay the attorney's fees for um, uh, then civilian, now President Trump. Yeah, it's hilarious. That happened the same day that Elizabeth Warren demonstrated that she has less Indian blood than General Custer. I mean, it's been a very good week for, for President Trump, mainly because his enemies are so bad at it. They're, they're so reckless. They're throwing every strand of spaghetti at the wall in the hope that it will stick and, and the sauce is getting all over them. Now, you pointed out at the beginning of our conversation that there very well could be uh, a blue wave this fall. We don't know what the outcome will be. And their big question is which side of the political continuum is more energized than the other. Uh, do you right. have any um, any insight, any thoughts on what you think might happen? I think the Kavanaugh hearing made every person in America who has a son or a brother or a father very worried that the standard of evidence for any kind of politically motivated charge was being reduced to anonymous notes sent by email to NBC News. Uh, third-hand uncorroborated rumors suddenly reported breathlessly by the New Yorker magazine. Um, you've got all these elite liberal institutions beclowning themselves and squandering what's left of their credibility in the desperate attempt to nullify this election. And I think that is waking up Republicans. I don't normally vote in midterm elections, and I'm not that thrilled about my local Republican congressman. But you know what? I want to stop Jerry Nadler from impeaching Brett Kavanaugh, as he's promised to do. I want to stop. I don't want Maxine Waters uh, bringing the politics of Antifa and mob rule to the floor of the U.S. Congress. You know, I've been telling people, I don't care if your local Republican congressman is named Rhino McAdulterer. You get out there and you vote for him to stop these lunatics from turning our government into something worthy of a banana republic where you have coup d'etats and mobs storming the Capitol and people beating up dissidents. Well, well said. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. We've got about, what, 22 days until the midterm elections, and it requires uh, everyone yeah. to take its uh, their responsibility and op- opportunity to vote, and we'll see what happens. Thank you so much for talking with yeah, us. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, John Zmirak, rather colorfully uh, giving his impression of what um, what's likely to happen in the days ahead. We're going to take a break here in a moment. When we come back, we're going to provide a bit more information about what's been going on over the last several days. And in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Lindsay Dennis. She's the author of Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. She lost two baby girls, only had the opportunity to hold them in her arms for a very short number of days. We're going to talk about um, how her family survived and where hope comes in after that. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Cherokee Nation responded to the results of Massachusetts Senator Elizabeth Warren's DNA test today, arguing that a DNA test is useless to determine tribal citizenship. Response came after the Democratic senator revealed that based on tests, she had Native American ancestry. Uh, in the range of six to ten generations ago, which is probably less than most Caucasians in the country. Current DNA tests do not even distinguish whether a person's ancestry was indigenous to North or South America, Cherokee Nation Secretary of State Chuck Hoskin Jr. said in a press release. Sovereign tribal nations set their own legal requirements for citizenship, and while DNA tests can be used to determine 
uh, lineage, such as uh, paternity to an individual, it is not evidence of tribal affiliation. Hoskin continued, using a DNA test uh, to lay claim to any connection to the Cherokee Nation or any tribal nation, even vaguely, is inappropriate and wrong. It makes a mockery out of a DNA test and its legitimate uses, while uh, also dishonoring legitimate tribal governments and their citizens whose ancestry are well documented and whose heritage is proven. Senator Warren is undermining tribal interests with her her continued claim to tribal heritage. I don't think things went quite the way she anticipated when she uh, released a a political campaign in which she asked, what was it, 23andMe, what the test proved, and it said, yes, there is a connection, but it was rather minuscule, one in 1,024, anywhere uh, right around there. Well, um, she was also criticized for releasing uh, the ad at a time when we're just weeks away from the midterm election, and uh, where attention was then focused on her rather than Democratic uh, candidates all across the country. Now, Warren, who is mulling a 2020 presidential run, repeatedly had been mocked by the president for claiming Native American heritage. The president has called her Pocahontas while criticizing her on the campaign trail. In an apparent response to those jabs, she produced a video for her Senate reelection campaign playing up the results of her latest DNA test. In it, she said, the president likes to call my mom a liar. What are the facts? And then the uh, person from the DNA test responds. Well, Stanford University professor Carlos Busmante, who did the analysis, replied, the facts suggest that you absolutely have Native American ancestry in your pedigree. Well, the Cherokee Nation begged to differ, and it's become something of a joke when you consider the the, um, number, which is uh, apparently beneath the average Caucasian living in the United States of America in terms of percentage of uh, Native blood, if in fact that's what it is. Well, American democracy has a problem. It's a voting problem, according to a new study of U.S. census data. America has more registered voters than actual live voters. It's a troubling fact that puts our nation's future in peril. Well, the data come from the Judicial Watch Election Integrity Project. The group looked at data from 2011 to 2015 produced by the U.S. Census Bureau's American Community Survey, along with data from the Federal Elections Assistance Commission. As reported by the National Review's DeRoy Murdoch, who did some numbers crunching of his own, some 3.5 million more people are registered to vote in the United States than are alive among America's adult citizens. Such staggering inaccuracy is an engraved invitation to vote. Fraud. Well, Murdoch counted Judicial Watch's state-by-state tally and found that 462 U.S. counties had a registration rate exceeding 100 percent of all eligible voters. That's 3.552 million people who Murdoch calls ghost voters. And how many people is that? Well, there are 21 states that don't have uh, that many people, nor are these tiny rural con- uh, counties or places that uh, don't have the wherewithal to police their voter rolls. California, for, for instance, has 11 counties with more registration voters than actual voters. Perhaps not surprisingly, it is uh, deep blue state California. Ten of the uh, of those counties voted heavily for Hillary Clinton. Los Angeles County, whose more than uh, 10 million people make it uh, the nation's most populous county, had 12 percent more registered voters than live ones, some 707,475 votes. That's a huge number of possible votes in an election. But Murdoch notes California's San Francisco County earns the enchilada grande. It's 138% registration uh, translates into 810,966 ghost voters. Now, state by state, this is an enormous problem that needs to be dealt with seriously. Having so many bogus voters out there is a temptation to voter fraud. California, uh, where the uh, one candidate racked up the uh, massive majority over Trump, it would have 
uh, made a, a little bit of a difference in the outcome of that race. And American Majority CEO Ned Ryan and Jammu Green, former candidate for DNC chair, debate the differences between the ideologies of capitalism and socialism. Retirees are set to uh, see the biggest increase in their monthly Social Security checks in seven years. Social Security Administration announced on Thursday that the cost of living adjustment for the coming year is 2.8%, which will boost the average beneficiary's check by about $39 per month. The increase is the largest since 2012. It will raise the current maximum benefit collected by someone who retires at full retirement age, 66 for people born in 1943 through 1954. Um, by about $78 per month. About 67 million Social Security and Supplemental Security income beneficiaries will be impacted. The, d- the increase, rather, is in line with projections put forth last month by Citizen, uh, Senior Citizens League, a nonpartisan senior advocacy organization, which had initially forecast a 3% adjustment. One family, different unlimited plans. Um, the cost of living adjustment was 2% in 2018, or $26 per month on average, but was largely perceived to be offset by increases in Medicare costs. Medicare Part B premiums are projected to increase by about $1.50 up to $135.50 per month in 2019. And 2018 Social Security benefits increase followed a 0.3% rise in 2017 and no ends at all in 2016. Well, Taxpayer Association of Oregon reminds us that it was front page headline on Drudge Report all day Sunday about the street chaos in Portland, where violent Antifa protesters were seen harassing people and engaging in violence. Other newspapers are noting it as well. The Washington Times headline, Portland Mayor Stands by Decision to Allow Antifa to Block Traffic, Hassle Motorists. The Washington Post, Political Violence Goes Coast to Coast as Proud Boys and Antifa Activists Clash in New York and Portland. NBC Nightly News, Political Violence Leads to Arrests and Injuries in New York and Portland. And the Portland Tribune, Wheeler blasts Fox News, I'm not a nutcase mayor. Well, uh, the violence over the weekend has become something of a regular expectation. Meanwhile, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler has already drawn criticism for denying police protection to groups he doesn't like. Um, uh, Portlanders are uh, being afraid to go downtown or have been afraid and fear a new season of lawlessness in the streets of Portland. Well, when the mayor refused to help federal ICE agents, uh, Taxpayer Association created a cartoon that summed up the mayor's priorities. In it, you had see someone at the dispatch uh, sitting in a chair with a headset. There are violent protesters threatening people and damaging property at the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Office. She responds, sorry, can't help. And they're in unlawful possession of straws. We'll send a SWAT team ASAP. Well, the um, Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler, uh, needs to restore peace and security to the streets of Portland and to honor police protection of all citizens, regardless of their political beliefs. One can only hope that that will, in fact, uh, be the case at some point in the future. But Portland Mayor Wheeler came under fire over these uh, videos showing Antifa protesters blocking traffic, harassing drivers. Uh, But he says he supports the decision by police to watch from a distance without getting involved. Uh, He said in a press conference, I was appalled by what I saw in the video, but I support the police. This whole incident will be investigated. Well, the video posted by journalist um, Andy Nyo uh, showed protesters, including members of Antifa and Black Lives Matter, blocking an intersection and attempting to direct traffic uh, while officers on motorcycles watched from a block away. At one point, the activists chased down a 74-year-old Kent Hauser after he made a right turn against their wishes, pounding on his silver Lexus and breaking the window. The car sustained thousands of dollars of damage, uh, he told the Oregonian. Even so, the mayor insisted that motorists should feel completely safe coming into downtown Portland. Well, demonstrators didn't obtain a permit before holding the October 6th march to protest the death of Patrick Kimmons, 
A 27-year-old man who was shot and killed on the 30th of last month. The shooting is under investigation. The mayor has been accused of taking a kid glove approach to the protests that routinely roil the uh, liberal enclave, such as the summer occupation of the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Building, which saw Portland police refuse to assist the immigration enforcement officers unless they were in physical danger. This is the kind of street anarchy that routinely happens where I live, tweeted Mr. Nyo, who took video. More rioting broke out Saturday night as Antifa activists brawled with protesters who turned out for a flash march for law and order organized by Patriot Prayer, a right-wing group. Portland police made no arrests during the uh, melee that turned bloody, even though officers observed people in possession of hard-knuckle gloves, firearms, batons, and knives. Officers also observed people with pepper spray, according to a department statement. Officers responded to the scene and used less lethal munitions to break up the fight and prevent further violence. The Portland police chief, um, uh, Daniel Outlaw, said, we will continue to investigate this incident and ask that anyone uh, who was the victim of a crime to come forward and file a report. According to uh, TV station KGW, four people received medical attention, but authorities did not know whether anyone was hospitalized. Ah, Portland, what a place. 59 minutes after 4 o'clock, we've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. In the second hour of the program, we're going to talk with Lindsay Dennis. She's the author of Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. She'll join us in the 5 o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Seven minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we'll talk with Lindsay Dennis. She's the author of Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable imaginable hope. That's coming up later this hour. Well, Kermit Gosmel, the movie, managed to break into the top 10 on its uh, opening weekend at the box office, according to Box Office Mojo, despite a menagerie of hurdles to get the film made and released. Um, It began with fundraising for the film four and a half years ago. Gosnell himself, presently serving three life sentences, was convicted of first-degree murder in 2013 for killing three babies during botched abortions. He was also convicted of performing illegal late-term abortion procedures. The charges certainly do not reflect the breadth of his uh, lawlessness, but many media outlets appear to be uninterested in the film as they were when the actual Gosnell trial was happening five years ago. Facebook prohibited the filmmaker of Gosnell to promote the movie on the social media platform. Um, uh, the sole Gosnell movie review that turned up is in the Nexus newspaper search is that of the L.A. Times. National Public Radio refused to air the movie's promotion because NPR prohibited the use of the term abortionist and abortion doctor, both of which he was. Uh, in any event, uh, there uh, the what the FBI and Pennsylvania Department of Health officials stated they saw upon raiding the abortion clinic of Dr. Kermit Gosnell in February of 2010, and it's a bit more graphic than I would suggest children listen in. On, They write that there was blood on the floor, a stench of urine filled the air, a flea-infested cat was wandering through the facility, there was, a, there was cat feces on the stairs, semi-conscious women scheduled for abortions were moaning in the waiting room or recovery room where they sat on dirty recliners covered with blood-stained buckets or blankets. That is the description of what the FBI and the Department of Health officials saw. Now, Gosnell, the trial of America's biggest serial killer, rather, premiered last uh, Friday. It chronicles the shockingly true story of a man can convicted of murder for killing babies born alive following abortions, involuntary manslaughter for the death of 41-year-old Nepalese uh, refugee uh, Monger, 
followed uh, following a botched abortion procedure and several felony counts for performing late-term abortions past the 24-week gestation limit imposed by Pennsylvania law. In 2013, he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Like the vastly underreported story it was when it occurred, the same American uh, media allies who view abortion as something akin to a religious sacrament hope the movie suffers a similar fate. In fact, uh, those uh, who opposed it have attempted to abet that scenario. Indie movie producers Phelan McClear and Anne um, McElhinney, uh, were uh, turned, uh, who turned rather their own best-selling book into a movie, were banned from raising funds for its crowdsourcing giant Kickstarter. Um, as I mentioned, NPR refused to run sponsored ad. Um, uh, Facebook uh, routinely denied ac- uh, um, accusations of bias against conservatives, but they banned the ads. Uh, for it altogether. After Kickstarter declined to use its platform, the the, uh, pair turned to crowdfunding site Indiegogo. The crowd responded with a record $2.37 million. Yet they still weren't out of the woods. Despite the book's popularity, conspicuously ignored by the New York Times, which refused to list it on its bestseller nonfiction list, even when it was number three on Amazon's bestseller list and number one on its hot news release list, some uh, actors walked off the project. Film distributors remained hesitant. Each one would say, great, important film, just too controversial for us. Now imagine that, a film in Hollywood being too controversial to be made, given some of the things that they have made and probably shouldn't. Well, one of the um, uh, producers of the film, Phelan McClear, stated in an interview with The Federalist, it's been one thing after another. Well, after finally securing national release last year, Judge Jeffrey Meinhardt, who presided over Gosnell's trial, filed a suit to block its release, insisting he was portrayed as a villain in their story of the righteous versus the wicked. As we can can say about that, or rather all we can say about that, McElhinney uh, tells the Federalist, uh, is that um, it was resolved. Unfortunately, that's all we can say. In an interview with Life News, the film director uh, Nick Searcy, who also directed The Shape of Water, took issue with the idea that the film is an anti-abortion screed, saying... We all agreed we did not want to make it a polemic movie. He said, I've always despised and rejected movies that tried to tell me what to think about a given story rather than just telling me the story and letting me decide. So what kind of movie did he make? We did did not make a pro-life movie or a pro-choice movie. He went on to explain, we made a movie about a crime that happened. No matter what side you were on, you can watch this movie. Perhaps, but uh, pro-abortion supporters have long disdained any anti-abortionist effort to show graphic images of the procedure or those of fetal development in the public and or ultrasounds of pregnant women. And when activists David Delayden and Sandra Merritt caught Planned Parenthood executives on tape discussing and buying and selling fetal parts, uh, they were not only outraged, California Attorney General Xavier Bacara filed a felony charge or charges, one for each, against them for filming people without their permission. The charges were ultimately dismissed, but the message is clear. When the topic is abortion, they will pursue any means necessary to prevent the public from becoming fully informed. Well, even more so with regard to Gosnell. In a 2013 column entitled What I Saw at the Gosnell Trial, J.D. Mullane revealed that what happened at Gosnell's clinic transcended the worst of Hollywood horror films. Tiny severed feet and hands stored in jars over a sink in a procedure room. Babies who survived an abortion only to have their spinal cord severed and then uh, their brains removed by suction were placed in a waste bin for disposal, he reported. That procedure is euphemistically referred to as SNP. Uh, Stephen Massoff, one of the Gosnell's fellow butchers testifying at the trial in exchange for a plea bargain where he was charged with only two instances of third-degree murder, described it as literally a beheading. It is separating the brain from the body. The movie pulls no punches, depicting severed feet stored in jars in the freezer, medical waste bags filled with the remains, and a quick look at the late-term abortion 
aborted fetus recovered from Gosnell's abortion factory lined up on an autopsy table, arriving, um, awaiting rather further examination. Well, much of the screenplay is uh, pulled word for word from grand jury testimony and trial itself. It is not sensationalized. And that includes a warning from the judge to uh, prosecutors not to politicize abortion rights in any way, even as a scene shows the state health inspector admitting that despite complaints, and they went on for years, Gosnell's clinic remained unreviewed for 15 years because the state's governor's office did exactly that. Abortion clinics were explicitly exempted from scrutiny. Now, some have charged that in states where they've tried to require that there be greater scrutiny over abortion clinics, that it was merely uh, politically motivated as a means to try to end abortion. But this uh, example of uh, Dr. Gosnell, if you can call him that, motivated some of that. Well, the film also shows something just as condemning. The movie is as much an expose of the media as it is of abortion, McElhinney stated in an interview with Newsbusters last June. The media who ignored the story will have uh, to explain to millions of people uh, who will see the movie why they censored the story. Well, maybe they won't. A mainstream media that avoided the trial for 56 days until public outcry and multiple letters from House members virtually forced their hand will remain as conspicuously uninterested as ever, and that is certainly proven true. Philadelphia News reports that reviews by mainstream movie critics are virtually non-existent and that the film's availability is is, uh, geography-based. It's uh, downright easy to go see the Gosnell uh, uh, movie if you live in places like Texas or Alabama, while there's literally only one movie screen in all of Manhattan showing that film. Manhattan is part of New York City, where more black American babies are currently boarded, uh, aborted than born. It should be seen. And in a 2011 column illuminating the societal consequences described by Daniel Moynihan as defining deviancy down, Bannon McKinnon wrote something just as compelling, asserting that Deviancy and normalcy have swapped places. Thus, he bet the here is uh, Gosnell, the trial of America's biggest serial killer, will remain under the radar, not because it should, but because in a morally adrift nation where the 60 million abortions performed since Roe versus Wade came the law of the land is celebrated as reproductive freedom. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Lindsay Dennis and her husband, Kevin, had only been married for a few months when they found out that they were pregnant. They were excited. They were hopeful, as most couples are, about the new life she was carrying and the future of their family. They were devastated, however, to learn at their 20-week ultrasound that the baby would not live due to a fatal diagnosis. They would relive their grief again as they buried their second daughter 14 months after their first. In buried dreams, from devastating loss to unimaginable hope, uh, she shares not only her story of grief and loss, but how to live uh, how to live out a hope that is greater than our dreams. Well, Lindsay Dennis has worked for Crew for more than 15 years. She served in international locations as well as universities here in the States and takes great joy in getting to invest her life in students from a variety of cultures and backgrounds. She also writes and speaks on what God has done to bring hope and healing to her life. She loves to share with others what it looks like to know God in the midst of suffering and how to trust him with a pen of their stories. Uh, in addition to her own blog. She's also a contributing writer to HopeMommies.com and StillStandingMag.com. She lives in Orlando, Florida with her husband, Kevin, and their four children. We'll tell you more about them in just a few moments. But first, we want to welcome Lindsay Dennis. We are delighted to have you with us this afternoon. Thank you. Great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Well, Lindsay, it's painful to just read the details of your story. And of course, we'll hear more in a few moments. But uh, to 
share them with others, to write about them, and to tell the rest of the story was your challenge. What motivated you to uh, share your pain with others in order to tell the rest of the story? Um, I just think as as I began a blog that chronicled our journey and got to know people and then um, just had opportunities to talk with others who are walking through both similar circumstances but just loss in general, I just was using our story to provide comfort to others and allowing the things that he was teaching me to then overflow into the lives of others. And so I wanted to write that down. I thought it was important to share the story and tell of God's faithfulness in our lives. I think that it's just important to tell the stories of what God has done to glorify himself in the midst of great pain. Now, most of us stop with the details that you share about losing your your two daughters. We stop there and we might imagine that this is evidence that God has somehow forsaken you and your husband. But there is much more to the story. And the subtitle of your book is From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. And there is hope in the pages of your book, Buried Dreams, which is the rest of the story that all of us need to be aware of, that where is God in the midst of these difficult uh, circumstances and suffering? And you explain where he is and how we find that hope. Yes. Yes, I'm, uh, there's so many ways in which she showed up throughout our journey. And one of the biggest ways early on was through our community and really how our community rallied around us to help us celebrate the life of our first daughter. And we, of course, found out at 20 weeks that she would not live and chose to carry her to term. And so for the next 22 weeks, uh, people gathered around us to lift our eyes to hope, to remind us of who God is, and to just uh, really wrap their arms around us and help us honor and celebrate this little life. And that was one of the biggest things that early on, God really used community in a way I had never experienced before. Um, We were very weak and weary, and we really needed the body of Christ to rally around us. And then as Dasa, we found out our second daughter, Dasa, would not live. That's where I entered the season of feeling abandoned by God and feeling like um, I got the short end of the stick, that somehow this was, you know, everyone else seemed to have happy stories or their life was, they were getting what they wanted. And here I was having to walk through the loss of my second child. Um, and I really wrestled with that. And, and in that season of darkness, community still rallied around us, but it was a much lonelier time just mm-hmm. because I think in and of itself, grief is lonely. Uh, but God really, again, revealed himself in the darkness uh, that he was still good and he was still for me. And those were just significant, two very different journeys with my both my daughters, uh, but significant things God was writing in my heart in the midst of it. The fact that you carried your daughters to term, knowing that you would not have them with you for very long, you chose to celebrate both of their lives alongside your church community. How important was that to you in this process of acknowledging their lives and then letting go? Yeah, it was really important that we uh, really just enjoyed the time that God did give us and we're rem- reminding ourselves that he was still giving us time with them, even if it wasn't what we'd hoped for. And, uh, and it was important for us to have community help us in celebrating. We couldn't do it alone. Uh, we were, again, very just, we had a lot of grief we were carrying in the midst of that. Um, and it was important for our community to know our daughters. And we really loved of the fact that even though our community, very few of them actually met them in person, they really fell in love with her, with each of them. And that was important for us for for them to know our kids and for our kids to be loved by them, even if it was only in the womb and only for a few hours outside. Now, you started a blog shortly after learning of baby Sophia's diagnosis to keep your friends and family informed. It became something much 
larger than you had anticipated. Can you explain a little bit about uh, what motivated you to provide that kind of resource for people who are close to you and then to see that spread? How did that impact you during this process? Yeah, so the first post that I posted, really, I just I wanted a place to direct people. I didn't want to have to ask be asked a million questions and, and be telling people what was going on over and over and over again. Um, so I really just started it as a place to share what was happening um, so that others know and can know how to pray. And um, also a way for me to just process what I was experiencing. And after I clicked post for the first the first post that I posted, um, I went back on the day after and I discovered it had been shared hundreds of times, had used thousands of times already. And, and it was like this little seed in my heart that God was reminding me, I'm doing something you can't see. Like I'm, your offering of your brokenness is going to be multiplied in ways that you, you can't imagine. Um, and that was just a reminder to me that, that when I offer God and offer people just even my mess, um, and here's what I'm processing. We have no idea how he may want to multiply that into the lives of others. Now, as you and your husband are walking through this very difficult journey, did you anticipate that at some point you would experience joy? Did you anticipate that um, there would be another side to the story that would be quite opposite of what you were experiencing in your sorrow, loss, and suffering? You know, not in the in the in the midst of it. No, I, I think I was. I knew, you know, maybe that joy will be heaven, but I can't imagine um, ever not feeling as sad as I felt on that journey. Even though there was much joy, there was much celebration, and those were little glimpses of the joy that I thought was more glimpses of eternal joy, uh, which I think it was that too. But I couldn't have imagined how God was going to even lift my heart to joy and experiencing hope in a way that it wasn't dark forever. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it was going to be dark forever in the midst of it. Well, I, I wanted to ask you that question because my guess is we have listeners today who are in that place and uh, in reading a book like yours, or at least hearing a conversation about your book, it might sound like you went from the loss of your daughters to hope in a matter of days, rather than going through the uh, the challenging process of uh, pursuing God in the midst of your loss and finding Him there and of uh, discovering that hope and joy that you talk about. Yeah, it was um, a four-year journey, really. Uh, I mean, it wasn't even at four years, and I'm okay, and I'm not even, I wouldn't say that that's how I feel today either. Uh, There's new aspects of grief that I'm navigating, but it really was a four-year journey of walking through just um, ups and downs and deep darkness and really wrestling with God and feeling like I wasn't going to see the light at the end of the tunnel and wondering if um, I was going to discover that the God that I had served for so long wasn't the God that I thought he was. Um, and so there was a lot of wrestling, a lot of darkness. And I think I needed I needed people in my life in that season who would remind me that God was going to meet me in the darkness. And I also needed people to remind me that it wouldn't last forever. And so I had people in both camps who uh, really were, had had been maybe five or six years out of an intense season of darkness and to tell me, Lindsay, there's hope at the end of the, at this tunnel, there is, there is light to be seen. The darkness will lift. You will still feel the pain of loss the rest of your life, um, but but you will experience hope on, on the journey, and you will see Jesus in a way you've never seen him before. And I had people who had gone before me who would remind me of that and uh, point me to him when it felt like, gosh, I can't even see the next moment. Mm. Again, pointing out the value of, of community in this process. Now, your book uh, describes a particular kind of loss, a particular kind of buried dream, but the book isn't limited just to women who have lost children. Um, this really is a book for anyone who has buried a dream or experience loss and pain. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I write the lens of my own personal story, but I really talk a lot about how God was in these 
this season of really waiting, waiting for my, my dream of even motherhood and how that would happen in my life and how God was meeting me in that season of waiting and then suffering, how God was meeting me in suffering and um, how God was drawing me to a place of surrender, surrendering my idea for my story to him. And I think that those those aspects of our lives, all of us will experience waiting and suffering and, and things that we need to surrender. And so I hit on each of those topics and even what in the midst of grief and loss, what does it look like to lament and to grieve and to bring our pain to God? And so I think that people, anyone who is experiencing some loss in, of any kind, a loss of a dream, something they thought would happen in their life, some place they thought they'd be today that they are not, uh, I think that they could gain some insight of even how I journeyed with God in that yeah. and how they could do the same. And I would agree. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon about the book Buried Dreams from Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. You're not sure how that's possible. Stay with us. We're going to continue our conversation with Lindsay Dennis in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Lindsay Dennis. She and her husband, Kevin, had only been married a few months when they found out that they were pregnant. They were, like most couples, excited, but it, they became devastated when they learned that uh, at 20 weeks uh, at an ultrasound that their baby would not live due to a fatal diagnosis. They would relive that grief again as they buried their second daughter 14 months after the first. We're talking about her book, Buried Dreams, From Devastating Loss to Unimaginable hope. Now let's talk a little bit about this, this hope that you experienced. You and your husband had anticipated being parents. Uh, You had two daughters that you were looking forward to meeting and ultimately raising, and both of them uh, went home to be with Jesus. Where did you go from there and how did, what did your hope look like and how did you find it? Well, I think, you know, after the loss, especially of our second daughter, um, that was a a devastation different from our first daughter. After a loss of our first daughter, we were still hopeful for how our family would form. And after we knew that Dasa would not live, we were like, will we even see our family form? And we had realizing, gosh, much much of our hope is in our circumstances. Much of our hope is in what God would do for us and not necessarily in him alone. And so after Dasa passed away, that became for me a season of great wrestling of, can I still trust God? Like, is he still worthy of my life when he doesn't make sense to me? It didn't make sense why we would have to go through even such the same loss twice. Um, And so I I think that that was really important for me to dive into with God and to begin to ask those questions and to seek out in His Word, what does He really say about suffering, really say about His goodness? What is His goodness really? And where is my hope to be centered on? And um, I think every day I'm still discovering, you know, how my hope can be so much in my circumstances. But that was a great season for me to realize, gosh, we have a hope that doesn't disappoint. And it doesn't disappoint because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross, that he has come and he has carried the burden of all of our sin, of all the pain of this world so that I could have life. And I had to, I saw that in a different way because of the suffering I was experiencing and because of the loss and the pain, I, I began to see the pain of the cross so much clearer, which mm. actually pointed me to the joy of it so much deeper. Mm. Now, you uh, write about uh, the fact that there were no pretty bows tied up at the end. Um, 
and that it was important for your readers to, to understand that. Tell us a little bit about what your hope um, looked like uh, as you moved forward and whether or not that buried dream of parenting a family um, was fulfilled. Yeah. So, you know, I think that at the end of my book, I talk about, I mean, I talk about Jesus being really who I discovered was the one I wanted all along and the one who was the one where joy and hope was found. And I think that's a pretty big bow. But circumstantially, you know, that that was really what I was learning to cling to. What does it cl- mean to cling to Jesus in the midst of the things that I'm hoping for? And I, I really want the reader to hopefully experience that um, because I just think the journey of a Christian is, is such an up and down journey. And we don't often get answers to our questions of the pain in, the, in this life, but we do get Jesus every time. He reveals himself in new ways. And as our journey continued, we actually stepped into adoption. I do talk about this in my book very mm-hmm. briefly. Um, but our son, Jaden, uh, came into our life through adoption four months after we lost our daughter, Dasa. Um, and then just recently, three months ago, I had another little girl who is in our arms today. And her name is Briella. Um, and I had her. She's biological. And so God has been faithful to continue to form our family. But in that season of, of wrestling with God, I really had to release my the grip of my idea for my life to God and surrender to Him. And I really was in a season where I was content in the sense of I still desired for God to form our family, but I trusted that if his goodness to us was we would not have any more children, then I I trusted him in that, as painful as that was to think of. Um, And so I think that really brought me to a place of, Lord, will I trust you with my story? However you choose to write it, even if it doesn't include the things I long for the most. And he's been gracious to us to include another son and another daughter, which is really, really sweet. How do you hope the reader experiences your struggle as they read um, your story? from its tragic beginning to an end in which there's hope. I I hope that they would would feel known and seen in their own pain and their own wrestling and that they would have the even have a few tools to to put their arms around to know what do I do with my pain? What do I do with my questions of why and where are you in this? And it doesn't seem fair. Um, I hope they'll connect with those things and that they'll be drawn to Jesus and that they will see him in ways that they had never seen him before in the midst of their own losses. Now you write early on in the book with great conviction. Do you continue to wrestle with any of the elements of uh, that part of your family's history? Yes. Yes. Um, today is actually National Pregnancy and Infant Loss Remembrance Day. So this week it's been really fresh on my mind and my heart. I mean, I think of my girls every single day, um, even if I'm not even consciously thinking of them, they're on my mind and on my heart. And so there, there's ebbs and flows where I just wonder, you know, I just miss them. And I wish that they were here with us. And yeah, I wish that they could you know, be big sisters to their little brother and their little sister. And I wonder what, you know, what life would look like with all of them here. So I long for I long for them. And my heart um, wonders at times, you know, where where were you, God, in this? And yet I'm just drawn back to the ways that I, I did see him. And so I know that in the questions that he can take my questions. Yes. Um, and I can I can trust him with those. Now, for those who followed your blog through your experiences, what new content might they find in the book? Yeah, so I, I did write a lot of what I've written in my book is, is part of my blog, but a lot of it is different. Um, and just even a, a greater view of how I was wrestling with God in the midst of it. And especially my journey with Dasa, I didn't write much after she passed away on my blog. And so that will be a lot of fresh things. And I tried to just really allow people into some of the really vulnerable parts of our story. And the, the deeper questions I was asking that I um, I was pretty vulnerable on my blog, but I think I'm even more vulnerable in my book and mm-hmm. sharing what I was really wrestling with. Now you're a contributing writer to HopeMommies.com and Still Standing Mag. 
blog.com. Are you still doing your own blog? Yes, I do occasionally. Um, that Those take up more of my time. And then writing this book has taken up more of my time. But I do still write on my blog. And um, I do still talk about just the things God's doing in my life and our family's life and the ways that he's continuing to point us to hope um, in the midst of our current realities. Well, I thank you so much for being vulnerable in writing the book that will bring comfort and hope and set an example for those who are in the midst of that deep uh, sense of loss and pain and how to move toward uh, toward God for that unimaginable Mm -hmm. hope that you write about as well. The book is titled Buried Dreams from Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope, and the book is published by Abingdon. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break here in just a moment to wrap things up. But again, I would encourage you, if you are in the midst of suffering, I think it can be very helpful to read another's journey uh, when they have experienced that um, that devastating loss and somehow in the process of walking with God also experience the hope that his word promises. But sometimes we doubt when we are at our lowest. So again, the book is titled Buried Dreams from Devastating Loss to Unimaginable Hope. And she shares it very well. Abingdon Press is the uh, author, is the uh, publisher of the book. Quick break. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. We learned earlier this afternoon that Paul Allen, Microsoft co-founder Paul Allen, has died from complications of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, according to Vulcan Inc., uh, on behalf of his family. Uh, Allen passed away this afternoon in Seattle at age 65. His sister Jody said he was a remarkable individual on every level. And while most knew Paul Allen as a technologist and philanthropist, for us, he was a much-loved brother and uncle and an exceptional friend. His family and friends were blessed to experience his wit, warmth, his generosity, and deep concern, she said in a statement. For all the demands on his schedule, there was always time for family and friends. At this time of loss and grief for us and so many others, Uh, We are uh, profoundly grateful for the care and concern he demonstrated every day. Earlier this month, he revealed that he had uh, started treatment for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, the same type of cancer he overcame nine years earlier. The longtime CEO left Microsoft when he was first diagnosed with the disease. Current Microsoft CEO uh, Satya Nadella said Allen made indispensable contributions to Microsoft and the technology industry. She also said uh, he learned a lot, uh, uh, rather he also said he learned a lot from Allen and will uh, continue to... uh, be inspired by him. As co-founder of Microsoft, in his own quiet and persistent way, he created magical products, experiences, and uh, institutions, and in doing so, he changed the world, Nadalia, Nadalia, rather, uh, said in a statement. Allen also ranked among the world's wealthiest individuals. As of Monday afternoon, he ranked 44th on Forbes' 2018 list of billionaires with an estimated net worth of more than $20 billion. He was also the owner of the NBA Portland Trailblazers, excuse me, the NFL Seattle Seahawks, and had a stake in Seattle's Sounders soccer team. But of course, you don't take that with you when God calls you home. Eugene Peterson has entered hospice care. Every moment in this man's presence is sacred. So concluded the son of Eugene Peterson in a weekend announcement that the 85-year-old retired pastor and best-selling author of The Message and a long obedience in the same direction is receiving hospice care. Robert Creech, a professor of Christian ministries at Baylor University's Truett Seminary, shared the announcement from Eric Peterson on Facebook. Eugene Peterson has encouraged, formed, and often literally saved the ministry of more than one pastor over the years through his writing and thinking. I would include myself in that list, wrote Creech in a Saturday post now shared 
more than 1,000 times. He has refreshed scripture for many through his thoughtful paraphrase of the Bible published as The Message. He has taught us to pray, preach continued. It's, uh, it is time for those who have benefited from his ministry to return the favor to him and his family with prayer over the next several weeks. Well, this past Tuesday, Peterson was hospitalized after a sudden and dramatic turn in his health caused by an infection, wrote his son on Friday to friends and family with the encouragement uh, that they share the news. He is now being treated for pneumonia and is responding well to the IV antibiotics. He is eating again and went uh, for a very short walk this afternoon. He is much improved as of today. Eric Peterson continued, Elizabeth and I um, joined Jan and Leif in his room this afternoon for a meeting with his health care team of three doctors. They confirmed for us that the two main medical issues he is facing, heart failure and dementia, are advanced and progressing. Based on their recommendations, he will come under the care of hospice and his medical care will be primarily palliative, which means only treating um, the comfort aspects. As of now, it looks like it will be one to three more days before he returns home, depending on when all the support systems are in place. When I summarized the conversation with him later, I told him there were three main things for him to know. You are deeply loved. It appears that you are in the last months of your life. And when I asked him how he felt about that, after some thought, he said, I feel good about that. We are going to try to help make these remaining months as comfortable and enjoyable for you as possible, to which he gave us his millionth dollar smile and said, thank you. Today, he was visited by his brother and sister-in-law, Ken and Polly, Glenn, the Presbyterian pastor in uh, Kalispell, and Gary, the former director of the Lutheran Bible Camp. He's tucked into bed now and resting comfortably. I'm not exactly sure what he meant by it, but one of the last things he said to me this evening was, it just seems so sacred that they trust me so much. Well, Peterson is a shepherd's shepherd, a pastoral writer who aims to keep Christian leaders grounded in robust biblical theology aimed amid the din of shallow preaching aimed at self-improvement and megachurch marketing campaigns to do more. That's what Christianity Today noted. The founding pastor of Christ Our Savior, or rather Christ Our King Presbyterian Church in Bel Air, Maryland. Peterson is retired but continues to shepherd through his uh, spiritual theology writing. No Notably, his recent memoir, The Pastor, and over 30 other books. Uh, He was interviewed by uh, uh, Christianity Today uh, some time ago and uh, was asked what drove him to write the message. I didn't want to be cute, he told uh, Christianity Today. That was back in 2002 and again in 2005 on the lies and illusions that destroy the church. Last year, they published an excerpt of his final book, The Kingfisher Catch Fire. Uh, Other um, Christianity Today excerpts uh, from uh, the works include Mediating Like a Dog from uh, from Eat This Book and Life in a Country of Death from Living the Resurrection. You can find excerpts at Christianity Today online if you're interested in uh, looking back as he prepares to go home. Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary has appointed Scott Sunquist, Dean of Fuller Theological Seminary School of Intercultural Studies, as its next president, making it the third major evangelical seminary to put a missiologist at its helm. With an uh, interdisciplinary background studying evangelism, church history, and the global church, Sunquist reflects the missional focus at Gornwell, uh, Gordon Conwell and the growing presence of missions experts in seminary leadership. He will succeed current President Dennis Hollinger, who will retire at the end of this school year. The appointment of Scott Sunquist signals to me the commitment of the trustees to affirm the strong theological heritage of Gordon Conwell, as well as the need for a leading seminary that it, uh, like it to engage in major cultural and ecclesial challenges we face in our day. 
Timothy Tennant, president of Asbury Theological Seminary and, Gord- and a Gordon-Conwell alumnus, uh, in a statement. Sunquist will uh, join Tennant and uh, Denver Seminary. Mark Young is missiologist appointed to lead major seminaries accredited by the Association of Theological Schools. Well, taking a look at the remainder of this week, uh, on Tuesday, we're going to talk with Jason Williams. If you haven't noticed, we're about 20, 22 days away from the midterm elections. And uh, there's a lot being said about the implications, whose um, horse is going to win the race, who's going to lose, who's more energetic in terms of the two major political parties and so on. We have a governor's race in the state of Oregon and, and much, much more a tight race in Washington and the congressional um, lineup. We're going to talk with Jason Williams uh, from Oregon Taxpayers United, a Oregon Watchdog and Oregon Religion Report about what's uh, what's happening, what we might anticipate and look for in the midterm elections. Now, given the fact that our um, ballots come to us by May, We have a period of time to vote, so uh, they should start arriving very soon. And so now is a good time to start thinking about some of that. Uh, On Wednesday, we're going to talk with Dr. Russell Moore, his latest book, The Storm-Tossed Family, How the Cross Reshapes the Home. There are many challenges, many um, things that are vying for the attention of not just kids in a household, but their parents. We're going to talk with uh, Dr. Moore about the... uh, Uh, How the Cross Reshapes the Home, and that's uh, coming up on Wednesday. On Thursday, we're looking forward to our annual Union Gospel Mission Radiothon, and uh, we will enjoy some time giving uh, all of us an opportunity to respond to the needs of homeless men and women on our streets who uh, need the kind of uh, nourishment that would help them to survive uh, physically and even thrive, but also the element of the Union Gospel Mission um, that emphasizes the gospel, that provides them and presents them an opportunity uh, to meet Jesus along the way as well. So that's coming up on Thursday and Friday. Well, we'll lighten up. So I hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing and engineering today's program. Good to have you back. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.